Well, good morning. Shalom, shalom. Welcome to an Aliyah day. A new week, a new parasha. We are in parasha Beshalach. So glad that you are with us this morning from wherever you're watching. It's a joy to be with you, Baruch Hashem. And uh, very exciting. Uh, sorry about that, shaking the screen there. Sorry, uh, uh, or very, I should say very exciting to uh, be with you and to start a new parasha, Baruch Hashem. A new week of learning. And maybe this week we'll actually get through all of the parashot. We'll see, right? We never know uh, what amazing things we're going to run into. And it's a great joy to do that and to see all the, the beautiful things that Hashem has for us in store. And this parasha is no exception and this aliyah is no exception. So, again, welcome. If you're joining us for the first time, if you are brand new to uh, the program here, then we... Welcome you, glad that you're here, and so let's begin. We are in, as I said, the Parashah Beshalach. Uh, if you have the Art Skohumash, we are going to be on page 367, and this <coughs> is actually uh, chapter 13, beginning with verse 17, and this begins our uh, journey out of the land of Mitzrayim. So it says, Vayihi Beshalach Varo Etham Velonacham Elhim Derech Eretz Melistim Melistim Kikarov Hu Kiamar Elhim Pe Yanatam Haam Breshitam. So it says here, what happened when Pharaoh sent out the people that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines? Why? By the way, the land of the Philistines is where the. Um, uh, basically where the land of Gaza is today. Philistines is the ancient uh, way of saying Palestinian. And so when uh, f- when uh, Rome uh, kicked us out of our own land after the second uh, revolt, that in order to spite Israel, they changed the name of Israel from Israel to Philistia, which means uh, in the Latin, Philistines. Why? Because the Philistines were the ancient enemy of of uh, Israel, <clears throat> and so it was a way, it was a way to spite uh, all of us by calling our homeland by the name of our ancient enemies. Slika had a little something in my throat there. Pardon me. Um, so anyway, uh, th- this is why there's no such thing really as uh, Palestinians in terms of what we know them today. They're actually, uh, it's all from the from the Roman uh, war there. So anyway, but Hashem did not want us to, to go that way because we were just fresh out of slavery and he was concerned that we might lose heart in battle and turn back to Egypt. So he says, because it was near, for God said, perhaps the people will reconsider when they see war and they will return to Egypt. So God turned the people towards the way of the wilderness to the Sea of Reeds, literally uh, Yom Suf, sometimes translated as the Red Sea, but it's not really the Red Sea as we know today. It's, it was uh, actually more uh, a, a different type. Of, it was a different uh, area. And so it was literally referred to in Scripture as Yom Suf or the Sea of Reeds. The children of Israel were armed when they went up from Mitzrayim. So this is very interesting. We'll just pause here <clears throat> because... Just some very interesting insights to this particular verse. They were we were armed when we left Mitzrayim. 
And Baal HaTorim, it brings down that Vehamushim means that there were five types of weapons. Why? Because the root word Hamesh to arm has the same letters as Hamash, which means five. And so therefore, uh, it says uh, Rashi interprets the phrase uh, to mean that the children were armed when they went up out of, uh, of uh, Mitzrayim. And Baal HaTurim shows a connection between the two meanings of Hamesh, as used in our verse, armed with five types of weapons, uh, as it's brought down in uh, another source, which is Ezekiel 39.9. What were the five types of weapons? There were actually five types of weapons. And so they correspond, of course, I, was, I submit, they correspond to the Torah, to the five books of Torah. And here are the weapons. The shield, the buckler, the spear, the bow and arrow, and the mace. Those are the five weapons with which we went up out of uh, Mitzrayim. Now, <clears throat> something, a couple of things here with, with respect to the uh, weapons. This was um, uh, da, 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 verse, yes, verse 18. Well, first of all, uh, let me say this before I say that. Say the other thing. Why is it that Hashem took us by the way of the wilderness to begin with? So the Artskol Chumash brings down a statement from Rabbi Hananel, as quoted or cited rather by Rabbi Bachia, and the whole he brings down that the whole point of us going to the wilderness to begin with is because in the wilderness we had to live a completely miraculous life. And so, coming out of slavery, coming out of this mindset, you really think about what slavery is. Slavery is dependence upon someone else. When you're a slave, we think, when oftentimes we think of slavery, we think of uh, forced labor. Obviously, that is uh, a part of the whole picture of being a slave. But what does it mean to be a slave in addition to forced labor? And one could say, add to that a lack of freedom. Clearly, those are two things that are part of slavery. But what is the other part? The other part of, this, of slavery is something that people do not often think about, and it's the part of slavery that we very often embrace and therefore put ourselves in shackles very times unwittingly. What am I talking about? Well, a slave was dependent upon their master in every respect. A slave uh, did not have freedom, and therefore... They had to depend upon their master for their clothing. They had to depend upon their master for what they ate. They had to depend upon their master for where they slept. They had to depend upon their master for how they thought, what they thought, what they were allowed to say, what they weren't allowed to say, where they were allowed to go, where they weren't allowed to go. And so a, a dependent person, someone who is completely dependent on somebody else, beholden to them, is their slave. So when we ha- come out of Mitzrayim, we all have a slave mentality. We don't know what it's like to live on our own. We we've, we've don't know what it's like to uh, make our own choices. And so we, fall, we, we have still a slave mentality. We don't know what it's like to be really free. So Hashem has to teach us and train us in the wilderness that everything comes from Him. And so no matter what it is, whether it's our food or clothing or uh, anything at all, we have to depend upon Him. We are now slaves to, to Him. And so this is supposed to translate into our everyday life that when we have a job or we go to the grocery store or whatever it is, whatever is happening in our life, we have to understand that it all comes from Him. 
that everything, our whole existence, even our very breath and our lungs, is dependent upon Him. This is the lesson that we are learning in the wilderness through all the miraculous uh, life that, that we're leading. But going back to we are armed. So it says in the, uh, in the art scroll, Humash, that Hashem is actually pro-Second Amendment. That's right. You heard me right. The art scroll Humash actually says that Hashem is pro-Second Amendment. Here's what it says. It says, uh, We were armed. Although a nation under the direct protection of God should not need arms to defend itself, it is the Torah's way that people should conduct themselves in a natural manner, and then, if necessary, God will intervene with miracles. This is from Rabbeinu Bachia. Even though the people were armed, they would have they would have uh, fled back to Egypt if they faced a war against the Philistines because we didn't have the right spirit. We didn't have the right heart. So, uh, right off the bat here, we learned something very interesting is that we're not allowed to just say, you know what, God will protect me. No problem. Don't worry about it. Hashem has got this. We're not allowed to um, to say to ourselves or anyone that we are going to rely and depend upon a miracle of Hashem. Uh, instead, we have to understand that uh, God wants us to take natural measures. And in this case, he's literally talking about arming ourselves. Now, Rabbi Monk, now let's find this interesting because we're looking at what is Hashem's heart on a matter. And so Rabbi Monk, in his commentary, citing Rashi to this verse, we are armed when they we are were armed when they went out. Slika. It says, in fact, as Rashi explains, it was God Himself, God Himself. It was God Himself who instructed the people to take along the arms with which they would later wage war against Amalek, Sikon, and Og. Now listen to this. God himself told the people to take weapons with them when they left Mitzrayim. When did he tell them? He told them ostensibly during the Pesach Seder. Okay? During the Pesach Seder, hey, you're about to leave Mitzrayim. And so just you should know that you should take a weapon. Be sure and take your Glock. Be sure and take your Smith & Wesson. Don't forget Grandma's shotgun when you leave. Okay? So Rabbeinu Bakya declares that Israel's attitude towards the use of weapons differs, listen to this, differs from the other nations. The Torah requires us to exercise all practical options, including self-defense, before we can expect supernatural help to intervene. It is in this sense that King Shlomo states, Proverbs 21.31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but with Hashem is the victory. Hashem, the victory is with Hashem, absolutely. He is ultimately our protector, but the horse is ready for battle, you know, in case he wants to use the horse in order to ensure that victory. Now, why else is this significant? Aside from the fact that Hashem is pro-Second Amendment, what is the other significance to this? Well, as I just got through saying, Hashem, it says God told them to bring the weapons. When did He tell them? During the Pesach Seder. So we learn something. If we look at the Gospels, the Basara of Luke 22, 
the chap- Luke chapter 22, and starting in verse 36, we learn something. That at the Pesach Seder, the final Pesach Seder, Yeshua tells his disciples that you should carry a sword with you. And if you don't have one, you should, you should sell your cloak and buy a sword. And the disciples said, oh, look, we got two swords right here. And he said, that's good. That's enough. Beseder. But when did he tell, when, when did God tell us to carry weapons out of Mitzrayim? At the Pesach Seder. When did Yeshua tell us to take a sword with us? At the Pesach Seder. Isn't that amazing? What an interesting connection. And by the way, it's also at that place in the Besorah where Yeshua says that I'm going to be reckoned among the transgressors. Which, by the way, is he seems to imply this is why you need a sword. Yeshua was not a pacifist, by the way. Absolutely not a pacifist. Yeshua himself said, I did not come to bring peace. Many people say, hey, we shouldn't fight with each other. We should just be in unity. And no matter what you believe, you know, we should all be, be together. And uh, kumbaya, let's sit around the, the campfire and uh, hold hands and sing songs. That's not the Messiah. Does he want war? No, of course not. But he says, I didn't come to bring peace. And we know that to be true. The very nature of believing in Yeshua is, by nature, brings division. It means that we can't have certain, you know, it just brings division. I don't have to go, I don't have to explain it. You know what I'm talking about. You're, you're all adults. You have brains. You have logical thinking. God gave you intelligence. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so, but what's interesting here is he says, I will be reckoned among the transgressors. And so it just so happens that that word transgressors is the word anamos in Greek, anamos in Greek. That word, I will be reckoned among the transgressors, anamos, literally means destitute of the Mosaic law, which of course is a lie. Yeshua is saying here, I'm good, this is how I'm going to be reckoned, but it's not true. They're going to say that I was destitute of the Mosaic law, but that's a lie. Now, if we look at Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23... This is the famous passage where Yeshua, people come to Yeshua and say, Lord, Lord. And he says, away from me, I don't know you. And he says, you workers of iniquity. The word used there is anomia. And if you look it up, you'll find that anomia and anomos are synonyms. Both, in fact, anomia is taken from the word anomos. And therefore, he says, away from me, you people, because I don't know you. Why don't I know you? Because you are destitute of the Mosaic law. So I just find that to be interesting. That's all in connection with the fact that we should be leaving Mitzrayim with our Glock kosher weapons. So uh, moving on here in this uh, discussion. Also, this is there's another aside to the Hamushim, uh, referring back to something we learned in last week's uh, parasha. It says, according to the Midrash, the word derived from uh, from Chamesh, uh, uh, excuse me, Chomesh, a fifth, and it implies that one fifth of the Jews left Mitzrayim. The rest were not prepared to adopt what? Listen to what they were not prepared to. Do. Why did only one fifth, only twenty percent of the Jews who were in Mitzrayim, only twenty percent made it out? Why? What was the reason? Why did I? Why did they not uh, make it to the redemption? Here's the answer: They were not prepared to adopt a new life as God's people. What does that mean? 
adopt a new life as God's people. It means a Torah life, a Torah true life. Listen, I'm going to tell you something right now. And and take all the emotion out of it. Let's just deal with the facts. The reality is, if someone is not willing to adopt a Torah life, then they are not willing and therefore not eligible to participate in the redemption. That's just period. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you trying to say that we, quote unquote, earn our salvation through our works? No, of course not. Our salvation comes because God's mighty hand and his hand only. But if we're not willing to be in the covenant, then he's not willing to redeem us. It's no, it's no different than a man who says, hey, to a woman, will you be my wife? And she says, absolutely, I want you, I want to marry you. Okay, why do you want to marry me? Well, you've got lots of money, you're quite handsome. You know, if I marry you, you're kind of wealthy, I'll be prestigious, I'll be able to live in the palace, I'll have a nice car, you drive a Tesla, you have a Maserati, it's amazing, I'll have all the nice dresses. And then he says, okay, that's great. You know what? You're going to be my wife, you should be my queen, be wonderful. But she says, but listen... I'm going to marry you. I'm going to enjoy all those benefits. I'm going to enjoy all of, the, all of the provision. But you should know that I have no intention of being in covenant with you. I want all of the privileges. I want all of the blessings. I want all of the fancy clothes and fancy cars and big house. But I don't want any of the responsibility. I don't want any of, uh, you know, I'm not going to be faithful in anything like you want me to do. What Basically what it amounts to is I have no intention of signing the ketubah. And so you should know that that's his case. And so what's the man going to do? He's going to marry her? No. Taking her as a wife is solely in his power, but he wants a wife who's going to sign the ketubah. So it's no more complicated than that. It really isn't. It has nothing. We don't, it has, it, anyway, it's, it's a, a fourth grader could understand what I just said. It's really not complicated. Uh, by the way, before we get too much further, I wanted to go back uh, to Bo because I, I read something in Rabbi Monk's commentary that I didn't get a chance to share, and uh, it's just fascinating. So this goes back to uh, Shemot chapter 12 and verse 20. It says, You shall not eat any leavening or any leaven, any chametz, and all your dwellings shall you eat matzah. This is, of course, during the week of Pesach. So there's an interesting comment here from Rabbi Monk who brings down a Kabbalistic view, a Kabbalistic approach to this particular topic. This is from Kabbalah. Okay, so prepare yourself. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it says, Before the first sin in the Garden of Eden, good totally dominated evil. Okay, evil existed, but good dominated it. It did not have any, evil did not have any power, really. So, as a result of the fact, he's, uh, Rabbi Monk says here, that because good was uh, totally in power, it, it therefore rendered evil completely harmless. After the sin, good fell from its lofty position and became intertwined with evil. So now good and evil are on the same level. Since that time, good and evil hover jointly over the earth and mankind's task is therefore to discern good and separate it from evil, which is what Torah is all about. Torah is all about elevating the mundane to a level of holiness and making a distinction, by the way, between what is holy and what is evil. And by the way, those distinctions are not left up to us. Those distinctions are from God and we implement them. In other words, it's God who decides that pork is evil 
Eating pork is a sin, 100%. Eating rabbit is a sin. Eating snake is a sin. Right? Eating a cheeseburger is a sin. That's not up to us. We, it, you know, one can say, well, I don't agree. Oh, that's nice. Doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, is that God makes those distinctions. And so our job is to distinction, make it, or to actually to elevate, right? And say, well, this is holy and this isn't. Obviously, it's not limited to food, but I just use that as a simple example because it's easy. So anyway, continuing on to Rabbi Manga says, the mixture of hamets with a pure hamets-free substance represents this admixture of good and evil, which is the product of sin. Therefore, it must disappear. We've got to get rid of the hamets. Why? To elevate the good. So, so here's, here's the, uh, the bread and butter of what I'm trying to say here. No pun intended. <laughs> it says... The connection is alluded to in the numerical value 639. Why 639? Because 639 is the gematria of Etz Chadat, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whose very name indicates the moral confusion that came about in the wake of the, of the first sin. So what is it? Hava eight, Adam and Hava both, eight of the Etz Chadat, they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And therefore brought sin into the world. And so the gematria of, of Etz Chadat is 639, which happens to be the gematria of both Seor Hametz, which both of these words, Seor and Hametz, both mean leaven. So when we get rid of the Hametz, we are actually making tikkun for eating of the bread, or the tree rather, of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. We're actually taking that knowledge of the good and evil, that, that, that forbidden fruit, that chametz out of our essence every single year. And so this is why we abstain from eating leaven because we are refusing during that time, we're going back to Ganadin and refusing to eat of the tree. And so therefore, people that say, oh, eating, who cares, that was for yesterday. No. You're all when people when we eat hamets during the seventh days of Pesach, we are we're simply eating of the forbidden fruit. Uh, which, by the way, the forbidden fruit, the, the 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 word forbidden forbidden fruit is orla, which happens to be the same word for the flesh of the uncircumcision. So in verse nineteen, continuing on here, uh, verse nineteen it says Moses took the bones of Yosef with him. For he had firmly adjured the children of Israel, saying, God will surely remember you, and you shall bring up my bones here from you, with you. They journeyed from Sukkoth and encamped in Etham in the edge of the wilderness, and Hashem went before them in a, a day, in a, a cloud of pillar by day, and a, a pillar of fire he gave them at night, so that they could travel by day and night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Chapter 14. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and let them turn back and encamp before P. Harioth, before between Migdol and the sea, before Baal Zephon. You shall encamp opposite by the sea, and Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, or say of the children of Israel, Slikab, they are imprisoned in the land, the wilderness has locked them in. Obviously, Hashem did all this on purpose to draw the Egyptians out, and uh, he did it in, uh, purposely in front of this uh, idol to make Pharaoh think that his idol had power. 
that there was one last idol who could conquer Hashem. Pharaoh obviously is insane. He's obviously delusional. But as the um, as the art scroll Humash points out in uh, to verse five that this is a a a common problem with the human heart is that we will. Uh, we will literally become insane. We will become delusional. We will uh, uh, de de delude ourselves. And whenever we want to believe something, we'll make up all kind of rationality to believe it. And uh, it's just it's a, a part of the human condition. And we see Pharaoh doing this. So Hashem says, I shall uh, strengthen the heart of Pharaoh and he will pursue them. And we'll be, I will be glorified through Pharaoh and his entire army. And Egypt will know that I am Hashem, and so they so uh, so they did. And it was told to the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants became transformed regarding the people. And they said, "What is this that we've done? That we've sent them away, Israel, from serving us?" And he harnessed his own chariot. So Pharaoh is so insane, he decides he's gonna he's gonna harness his own chariot in order to set an example to inspire the people. And therefore, he attracted his people. It says. He took 600 elite chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers on them. And Adonai strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel were going out with an upraised arm. So going back to verse 19, we read something very interesting. It says that Moses took, Moses took what? He took the bones of Yosef. So it says here that Moses went about uh, collecting the bones of, of, of Yosef. Why? Because Joseph had said to be sure and take me with you when you leave and bury me in my own land. He, he was, uh, there was a delay uh, in, in taking him. In other words, when y Jacob died, we took Jacob immediately and buried him in uh, Canaan. Why didn't we take Joseph? Because Joseph knew that they would not, have, they would not be able to uh, do that, number one, because they would be prohibited from leaving. He foresaw that in the future. But also they needed Yosef for the exodus. Why? Because the, the sea, the Midrash tells us, the Red Sea, the sea, uh, Yom Sof anyway, uh, did not part until it saw the bones of Yosef. There's another reason why. But um, the Kehot Humash brings down an interesting uh, insight here. The answer, by the way, uh, the Midrash talks about that Moses went about collecting the bones of Yosef and the people were collecting all the spoils. But then we learn in, the, in another Midrash that while the people were collecting the spoils, Moshe was collecting the converts <clears throat> because Moshe interpreted that the converts were really the treasure. So the question is, was Moshe collecting the converts or was Moshe collecting the bones of Yosef? And the answer is yes. Why? Because Yosef, we learn from the story of Yosef, Yosef was all about the converts. To, so therefore, to collect the bones of Yosef, the Messiah ben Yosef, whose very essence was to bring people into the covenant, which we're about to learn, when Moses was collecting his bones, he was in essence collecting the converts. The sparks of holiness that had come to a knowledge of Hashem uh, in part through the knowledge of Yosef. Now, we read in the, in the uh, K.L. Tumash to this point. Rather than referring to Yosef's remains or using some other discrete term, the Torah uses the seemingly indelicate description, the bones of Yosef. Seemingly crude description. Why? Why would it use such a crude description of such a Zadik? 
not just any Zadik. You understand that Yosef was the, the prototype. He was the, uh, he was the picture of the Mashiach bin Yosef. So why do we use such a seemingly indiscreet term? And by the way, why don't we break the bones of the Messiah or the Pesach lamb? Because of this reason. So it says, uh, let me hold that thought for a second. So it says here, this is because the bones are in a sense, the essence of the body. They form its strong, defining frame and are the only part of the remains after all else has decayed. Indeed, the Hebrew word for bone, etzim, also means essence. So the reason we don't break the bone of the Pesach lamb and therefore we didn't break the bone of Messiah Yeshua is because the bones are the essence of the lamb, of the person, the essence. So therefore we can't break Messiah's essence. So it says here, this verse can therefore be understood to mean that Moses took Joseph's very essence with him and this enabled them to cross the desert. Do you understand that we crossed the desert and the Red Sea in the merit of Joseph, in the merit of his essence? So what is the essence of Joseph? It says here, Joseph's essence is expressed in his name, which means, may he add, for when he was born, his mother Rachel prayed, may God add for me another son. Rachel yearned to bring another Jew into the world. Rachel yearned to bring another Jew into the world. So allegorically, this wish includes the desire to make a, an other into a son. Friends, that means converts. But it also means, as the Kehot points, who much points out, this is to welcome an estranged Jew back into the fold. In other words, we are we are bringing another. We're bringing someone who is a strain, a strayed from the covenant whether they're a Jew or non-Jew, and we're bringing them into the fold. This was the essence of Messiah ben Yosef. This was the essence of Yosef. The essence of Yosef was to bring people into covenant. And again, just a couple more things before we close out here. Moses took the bones of Yosef. Rabbi Monk points out. The Midrash com comments that this event should have been mentioned earlier in the context of the depart departure. However, it was mentioned here because this passage is where the Anun uh, clouds of glory appeared for the first time. Why? Because it says the clouds of glory came in the merit of Yosef. Moreover, it goes on to explain that these clouds of glory made the arduous and crushing existence in the wilderness much more enjoyable. And there's many reasons for that. But one of the reasons stated here is because they were perfumed with myrrh and frankincense and all the powders of the spice virgins. That was one of just many reasons why our wilderness journey was pleasant because we were walking around in a fragrant cloud. And the last thing we read here is that uh, about those clouds of glory, which came in the merit of Yosef, remember, Rabbi Monk points out that these clouds of glory did not leave even after the sin of the golden calf. Why? Because it, the clouds of glory in, that came in the merit of Yosef, please, please connect the dots. They represent love. 
They represent love of Israel, hesed of Hashem, compassion. And listen to this. This is from, again, from Rabbi Monk's commentary. The proselyte Ankelos even mentioned this as proof in convincing pagans to convert to Judaism. This is from Avodah Zerah 11a. Which means, my friends, that Ankelos in the first century, who himself was a convert and wrote, translated the Torah into Aramaic, which the rabbis said was so important that we read it twice in Hebrew and once in Aramaic. We we read twice Hebrew, once Ankelos every week. Ankelos was out trying to convince converts to come into the covenant. He did not have the attitude of, oh, we don't have to get... Messianic Gentiles, uh, what's the other thing, that ridiculous uh, uh, Noahide, yeah. No, no, that wasn't Ankylos. He was trying to convince, and he used the clouds of love, let's call them, which came in the merit of Messiah ben Yosef in order to convince converts to embrace the covenant. So it says the reappearance of the divine name Hashem, in this context, likewise indicates that the protective pillar of cloud was a manifestation of divine love. So, this teaches us a lesson on our way out the door this morning that as we are talking to people and encouraging them to come into the kingdom, we need to do it enveloped in a cloud of love and to express to them the heart of God and the love of God and how much Hashem wants to bring them into the covenant vis-a-vis Hesed. Why we do it is because this is what Hashem, uh, this is the gospel that Hashem preached. How we do it is through the cloud of love that came and the merit of Messiah ben Yosef, Messiah ben Yosef, um, who is Messiah Yeshua. Shalom, shalom. Thank you so much. For joining us this morning, may you have a beautiful, wonderful, and amazing day. Do your friends and family a favor and share this video and this podcast with them and spread it around. Let's spread the cloud all over the crowd in Yeshua's name. Shalom, shalom. We'll see you tomorrow. Uh, Bezrat Hashem.